Don't forget to rate us on iTunes so we can continue to bring great content to you. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Robin Maggio, and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast, Tourette's Syndrome and ADHD, starting a new year with health, school, and home supports. Today's webcast is part of Chad's National Resource Center on ADHD, Ask the Expert series. NRC is funded by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and provides reliable science-based information about current medical research and ADHD management. If you're looking for information and resources about ADHD, we have health information specialists available Monday through Friday between 1 and 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You can reach them at 800-233-4050. We are honored to be offering this webinar today in partnership with the Tourette Association of America. Joining me modern today is Ali Gemma, CDC Program Director from the Tourette Association. Ali. Hi, everyone, and thank you to Robin and the NRC at CHAD for hosting us today. So just to tell you a little bit about us, the Tourette Association of America was founded in 1972, and we're actually celebrating our 45th anniversary this year. The TAA mission is centered on making the life better for all individuals affected by Tourette and tic and we're actually the only nationwide organization servicing this. To accomplish this, our work focuses on three pillars, raising awareness, advancing research, and providing on one of our strongest programs is our long-standing partnership with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, to provide education and develop resources for professionals and Red Association directs a network of 32 chapters and over 80 support groups across the country. We also have a full-time information and referral staff to answer any questions you have. So for more information on Tourette and tick disorders, you can call us at 1-888-4-TOURETTE-T-O-U-R-E-T-E. Or you can visit our website at Tourette.org. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So without further ado, I'm very excited to introduce our first speaker on today's panel. Dr. Barbara Coffey is an internationally recognized specialist in Tourette syndrome and related disorders, and a long-standing member of the Tourette Association Medical Advisory Board. She is chief of the Ticks and Tourette's Clinical Program, a TAA New York State Center of Excellence Director, and professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Dr. Coffey is the recipient of numerous research grants from NIH, Foundations and Industry, and her research has focused on phenomenology, psychiatric comorbidity, neurobiology, and novel treatments of Tourette disorder. So Dr. Coffey, uh, welcome, and please go ahead with your presentation. Uh, I'd like to thank Robin and Allie from Chad and from the Tourette Association of America for inviting me to participate in this webinar. I have a few slides to introduce the topic, be followed by uh, two other speakers. Um, these are my disclosures for the past 12 months. I've received 
support from the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, research support from OSPECs, now known as TEVA, Catalyst, the NIMH, Miracrine Biosciences, and Shire. I've also uh, consulted to Genco Sciences and received research support in the past from the Tourette Association of America, and I'm now back on the Medical Advisory Board and participate in the uh, TAA-CDC partnership. And it's a real pleasure to be able to speak with you today. So we'll start out with the definition of tics. Tics are sudden, rapid, repetitive, non-rhythmic movements or vocalizations which occur in the context of otherwise normal activity. Tics change in type, intensity, and location. And tics are increased by stress, excitement, or anxiety. Tics can be suppressed temporarily and are reduced by focused activities. And this may explain why, for example, kids may have a lot of tics at home or after school, but have fewer tics in the classroom as they are focusing on the work that they are uh, learning about. Tics are often preceded by a specific or generalized urge or sensation. How do we classify tics? We classify tics in two groups, both motor and vocal. And within those groups, we also classify by whether tics are simple or complex. And I'm going to give several examples. Uh, a simple motor tic involves primarily just one muscle group. And this would be, as an example, uh, rapid eye blinking, head shaking, shoulder shrugging, or tensing the abdominal muscles. A complex motor tick is described as a coordinated but more purposeful kind of movement. And for example, touching things repeatedly, tapping on the desk or the table, walking in a certain pattern, skipping in the middle of walking, or jumping can all be complex motor tics. When it comes to vocal tics, they're also known as phonic. Um, again, we have the same classification. We have simple vocal tics, which involve just a simple single sound. And examples of this would be sniffing, coughing, grunting, throat clearing, snorting, and even barking or squeaking uh, can be a simple vocal tic. A complex vocal tic is when multiple sounds, uh, words, or phrases are strung together. So an example would be repeating short phrases such as, oh, OK, or I love you, mom, I love you, mom. Uh, repeating others' words, or particularly the end of a sentence, or repeating the child's own words are often uh, used as, as described as complex vocal tics. Um, you may have heard about uh, what's called coprolalia, which is the involuntary uttering of obscenities or swearing. But in fact, this is a very rare occurrence um, in Tourette's syndrome. Uh, Tourette's disorder is one of the uh, tic disorders. And this is uh, defined by multiple motor tics 
and at least one vocal tick that have present, been present at some time during the illness, although not necessarily concurrently. In fact, often it's the motor ticks that begin first, usually at around age five or six, followed by vocal ticks a year or two later. The ticks may wax and wane in frequency, but uh, they've persisted for more than one year since the first tick onset. And because Tourette's syndrome is considered a neurodevelopmental disorder, by definition, this is a disorder that has onset before age 18 years. Now, what's very interesting is the co-occurring uh, symptoms and problems with Tourette's disorder. And there's a, what we call a bidirectional overlap. Uh, for example, the rates of tick disorders are higher in kids with ADHD than in children without ADHD. And this is also true for adults, although ticks are far less common in adults than children. And if you flip the coin, rates of ADHD are high in children with Tourette's disorder. Perhaps 50 to even 75% of kids with Tourette's will also have co-occurring ADHD. And if you look at some data from a recent um, national survey of children's health in the United States, when parents whose children had been diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome were asked about what other problems their children had, indeed, ADD and ADHD was uh, reported in more than 60% of uh, children who also met criteria for Tourette's syndrome. So it's very common to have co-occurring uh, other neurodevelopmental and neuropsychiatric problems in association with Tourette's syndrome. Uh, and this indeed is kind of a map of the overlap with tic disorders in general. ADHD and obsessive compulsive disorder, which also tends to be very frequent in kids with Tourette's. And as you can see, Tourette's is in the middle of this. Additionally, there are other kinds of behavioral problems, but we'll focus primarily today on um, ADHD. What's important to know is that ticks of Tourette's syndrome, although they begin early at around age five or six, they tend to be at their peak fairly early in uh, life, um, typically at around 11 or 12 is the lifetime peak severity of ticks, and then they diminish over time. But we do know that kids with ADHD tend to have persistent symptoms well after puberty and even into adulthood. So um, in some ways, there are two different types of courses of symptoms over time. And certainly, ADHD can be the more problematic in the long run, since ticks tend to get better. One very important issue that you may have heard about from your pediatricians or other practitioners are the association between stimulants like Ritalin or Adderall and development and increase of ticks. But unfortunately, this was really, uh, this controversy was begun from one very old study published in the 1980s describing 15 children. Um, and with fast forwarding to many, many studies which have been published since that time, um, in the most recent meta-analysis, and this just means an analysis of studies, of more than 2,300 children showed that the rates of beginning ticks or worsening of ticks were about 6% um, when kids were treated with stimulants, which was almost the exact same rate as the increase or onset of ticks when kids were treated with a placebo or a sugar pill. So the take-home point, and we can talk more about this in the discussion, 
is that there's really no evidence that stimulants increase ticks. That's not to say that there aren't some children that are sensitive to the effects of stimulants, but for the most part, there's nothing um, to suggest that kids with ADHD who have ticks cannot be treated with stimulants. So what about management of uh, co-occurring ADHD in ticks or Tourette's? As I mentioned earlier, most kids with uh, Tourette's and ADHD will experience improvement in their tics, usually by late adolescence. And in some cases, the tics may go away altogether. And in general, we only treat tics if they're causing significant distress to the child or getting in the way of the child's daily functioning at home, at school, with friends or family. However, as I also mentioned, ADHD is usually persistent, even though the hyperactivity and impulsivity may attenuate um, the, in, the uh, inattention and the executive functions uh, problems often persist, usually persist. Um, and these symptoms are generally often uh, associated with more impairment than the tics. So the rule of thumb is we usually want to treat ADHD in a child, um, whereas tics may be simply monitored over time. Fortunately, we have very good treatments for both. Uh, both cognitive behavioral therapy approaches and medications can be used to treat both tics and ADHD, and in most places we uh, even try to use them in combination. And I would be happy to answer questions about the specifics in our discussion section. Thank, Thank you so much, Dr. Koch. Just a reminder to the audience, feel free to post any questions that you have for our speakers today in the Q&A panel and we'll be sure to answer them at the end of the presentation. So now I will introduce our next speaker, Pamela Malley. Pam Malley is a speech language pathologist and also a parent of a child with Tourette syndrome. She has 25 years of professional experience and has served on the Tourette Association of America Education Advisory Board since 2011. Pam travels nationally, providing in-services for parents, educators, and speech pathologists on various topics related to improving social, academic, and communication skills in children with TS. Pam's past work experience includes teaching in the university setting and serving adults and children with communication disorders in the hospital and settings. So welcome, Pam, and please go ahead when you are ready. Okay, thank you, Allie, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this today. So as Dr. Coffey said, the incidence or co-occurrence of ADHD in children who have Tourette is pretty high and or is very common. And if you look at this slide, ticks are really just the tip of the iceberg. And as Dr. Coffey said, a lot of times the ticks really aren't interfering as much as all of the other co-occurring conditions that you see below the surface. So things like OCD and behavior types of um, symptoms executive function issues. These are the things that really interfere, especially in the academic setting at school and with social emotional relationships at school. So those are the things that kind of pop up more on our radar and that we get more questions about because people really have difficulty managing those kinds of symptoms. So now that we're at the new year, we figure it's a good time to evaluate how things are going. It's halfway through the school year. So it's a good time to reflect on what things really went well last semester, what things are getting in our way. It's oftentimes much easier for families to identify areas of need, and we don't focus in these kids enough on areas of 
strength. And the reason why that's so important is that the areas of strength really are the key to success with these kiddos. If we can get in there and really identify where is this child successful, what are their talents, whether they have a great attitude, whether they have a great sense of humor, whether they're artistic or musically inclined, we need to look at that and we need to use those strengths to address the areas of need. And then in terms of the areas of need, we have to prioritize because sometimes kids can have a really complicated set of co-occurring conditions and symptoms that work hand in hand together that really are difficult to address all at once. So you have to prioritize and see if you start to work away at one thing, can you start to have improvement in others? But if we try to work on everything at once, we're really not going to get a lot done. So I encourage families and teachers to make these lists so that we can then make a plan of a, a strategy plan to start addressing what, what will really make an impact in the child's education. So if necessary, you can have a team meeting to strategize. I know that it's time consuming, it's hard for schools. You don't want to call team meetings for every little thing because that's not going to fly with, um, with the school. They have a lot of kids and a lot to do. But if things are really going, not going well, or you're really, your student is really struggling, certainly a team meeting might be in order. And um, in that team meeting, you could gather information. Where do you see my child being strong? Where are they doing well? And um, brainstorm what, how you can use those strengths in terms of areas of need. So for example, if the child is really artistic, Smart pens are wonderful because you don't have to take notes. What they do is you use a special paper and you write in that like the child, I have a student that I'm working with and he writes pictures and it keeps him focused on what he's listening to in class. He's drawing pictures and then when he goes home, he'll put his pen on the picture and it cues him. He'll know, okay, we were studying orcas today in science. So we'll, and we learned about orcas in their house. So he'll draw a picture of a house in the orca and their habitat or whatever. And so then when he goes to that, it cues to bring up the lecture at that part or the, the teacher's presentation. And even if auditorily the student can't listen to it and get much information from it, the parents can, and then you can better support your child at home. So sometimes it works well for the student using the smart pen. Sometimes it works so the parent can understand and then help the student. But these are kinds of out-of-the-box thinking. We're not expecting them to write words necessarily. We're not expecting them to take notes. They, but it's a way for them to access the information when they're at home using skills that they are good at. If they're musical, you can use mnemonics, mnemonics or um, tapping or beats or song and rhythm to incorporate learning and, and help them. So those are the kinds of strategizing that, um, ideas that I'm talking about. If the child's having lots of behavioral types of symptoms, a functional behavior assessment is definitely recommended. And you want to be sure that if your school does one, that they're observing the student be successful in, those, in, in environments that are more supportive for them that they are successful in so that they can use that information. And then once you're strategizing and you come up with a plan, you have to make sure to put it in writing because if it's not in writing, it doesn't have to happen. Everybody really needs to be on board and the information has to be consistent. So I like to designate a go-to teacher who oversees the plan, meets with the child, meets with the teachers, is kind of the contact person to make sure everything is going well once you have your plan in place. 
I find that if we don't have that go-to person who's really overseeing things regularly, that things can fall through the cracks. So I think that's an important component. Another thing that's important to remember is that success isn't going to happen overnight. So you can't give up too soon. Some kids, like these are lifelong habits they've learned, and they have to learn a new habit. And that can take several weeks or months. And people will say, well, it's just not working. Well, we can't give up if it's only been a week. Sometimes it'll take several weeks. Then we have to brainstorm and problem solve. Why isn't it working? Or what do we need to tweak? Are we not being supportive enough? Does the student not understand their part in this? So we can't give up too soon. And we really have to be in an ongoing problem solving mode. Um, and skills really have to be taught one step at a time. We can't give them a 10-step program and say, OK, this is what you're going to do. Go do it. We have to give them one step and break it down and get them successful and consistent at the first step and then add something on. Okay, Take it in little pieces and build on it. If there's little or no improvement and you've really just done one step and it's been a few weeks, then evaluate and see what adjustments you need to make and discuss what progress is making or issues with the child also because the student often has information and answers and we don't go to them enough. We need to ask them what would help you with this or what's difficult about this so that we can support them and get their input and also have them buy into the program. Follow through is critical. Like I said, people need to, a teacher needs to oversee the program. And when things get frustrating, we have to do a perspective check. We have to think about, is the child a problem or does the child have a problem? Because when things get frustrating, we start to look at the child as a problem. And we can't do that because the child doesn't want to be a problem, and they're not. They, this is a really complicated diagnosis. And we have to examine what are the problems they're having, but not get frustrated at the child themselves. And um, we have to focus on positive supports because punishment reward systems really are not effective for um, for the long run. And they don't teach anything. If you just get punished every time you do something, you're not learning a different way. And taking the time to teach the different way is what is really going to be helpful in the long run. So we don't have tons of time in this, but we have lots of resources to help you. Here's the link to our website. And then also the second link is to submit questions. And if you submit that to our website, they will put you in touch with the person who can best help you so that we can get the information to you that you might be needing. And then we can also discuss more of this in the discussion section of this. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Pam. And now we're going to head straight to our final speaker now, Kathy Giordano. Kathy is a mother of three adult children two of which have Tourette and ADD. Kathy is also the National Tourette Association's Education Specialist. She has a background in teaching and for over 25 years has presented on Tourette syndrome, educational support, parenting issues, and positive proactive behavioral management for challenging behaviors. Kathy, welcome, and please begin your presentation. Thanks, Ellie. So today I, I am speaking as a parent of uh, kids with Tourette and ADD. Um, and as Ellie said, they're now adults. Um, but I'd like to share some of the important points of parenting kids um, with Tourette and or ADD um, that I've learned over the years, as well as um, from all the parents that I've talked to over the years. 
So first of all, um, this is a good time um, to, to examine things and to make resolutions. And, and I think um, one of the things we want to keep reminding ourselves as parents um, is that our, our child's diagnosis is only a part of who he is or she is. Um, and, and make sure they know this too, um, that their diagnosis does not define them, um, that they are a child with other talents and other interests. Um, so it's important that uh, we remember that and that they remember it because we don't want to put so much focus on their diagnosis and their symptoms that we forget to enjoy them, um, that uh, we forget to uh, have fun with them and allow them to be kids. So as a parent, I knew that my kids wanted to be good. Uh, they wanted to get good grades in school, and actually they really didn't want to wake up every morning wondering how they could drive me and everybody else crazy. Um, so I, the more I learned about their disabilities and how it impacted them, um, it became really obvious that the typical parenting techniques involving punishment often made things much, much worse. Um, I finally figured out that what I needed to do as a parent was to attempt to figure out why their symptoms were interfering with their lives and try to help them come up with the strategies um, and techniques that would help them manage their symptoms. Um, it, it's sort of a disadvantage that our kids are often smart and look like other children. Their disabilities aren't obvious and everyone thinks they know what needs to be done so that they will be good kids. So I needed to ignore a lot of the suggestions given by my friends, my families, and even strangers in the grocery store, um, and listen to my mother gut feeling. Um, I was lots of times accused of being a bad mother um, by those who wanted me to spank my children, um, but I really hung on to the belief that the punishment in, in the world, all the punishment in the world, wasn't going to cure them um, or prevent them from having symptoms. But I also knew that as their parent, um, neither I nor them could use the diagnosis as an excuse because I wanted them to learn at school and at home the strategies that they needed um, to be successful children um, as well as successful adults. Probably the most important information that helped me was um, when I had a good understanding of impulsivity and disinhibition. So it's fairly well known that ADD involves impulsive behaviors and that um, acting before thinking is one of their challenges. Um, as the old saying say, goes, by the time I thought about whether I should or I shouldn't, I already did. Uh, so that's the impulsivity. Teaching my children strategies for recognizing the need to stop, take a breath, take a minute, and think uh, was something that we needed to work on um, and to practice. But it was when I discovered a book um, that was titled Disinhibition Syndrome that discussed the fact that many kids with Tourette and related issues like ADD uh, struggled with disinhibition, um, that I was so much better at understanding my children's actions. Um, it's not that these kids don't know right from wrong. They do. They know right from wrong. But in the moment, their mental breaks fail them, and they say and act in ways that they don't want to. Uh, this was particularly true for my son, Matt, and what drove it home to me was that he was almost always filled with remorse after things had calmed down. It sometimes took a little while, but he he was always apologetic, and many times he, he just cried and cried about 
his behaviors and um, what he could do to stop them. Um, for instance, there was a time when no matter what I asked him, and particularly it was something that he wasn't particularly happy about, his response would be, shut up. Um, he would say this, and most times it was followed by a, sorry, mom. Um, he also had urges, like Dr. Coffey talked about and Pam talked about. The, the kids have urges, um, and the urges are difficult to inhibit. So he would sometimes touch a hot stove knowing he might get burned, but the urge to touch it um, would often win out, and he wasn't able to uh, control that. So as parents, uh, we need not only uh, to understand disinhibition, but it's really important that we know how to explain it to others, particularly teachers. Um, lots of times students will get in trouble in school, and when they call us parents in, they'll say, well, I know it wasn't um, his impulsivity because he had time to think about it first. Right. It's disinhibition. Um, it looks more purposeful than impulsivity because there is time to think about it but they just aren't able to inhibit the need to say or act in ways um, that they don't want to. So it's really important that we as parents understand that in raising our children, but also are able to explain it to uh, other people. So as Pam mentioned, um, another thing that's really important in parenting kids with Tourette and ADD is that so many of them have particular talents or interests um, many times this involves creativity, um, music or art or dance or singing or um, drawing or even creative with um, Legos and, and building things. So I strongly encourage parents to recognize their interest or talent and do whatever you need to do to encourage it. Uh, we found this to be critically important. Um, again, Matthew began drumming. He started drumming on everything on our house when he was about the age of two, so it really wasn't difficult for us to determine where his interest and talent lay. Uh, and so we did encourage it from a very early age. And his drumming had a major, major impact on, on him when he was a child. Um, it had an impact on his self-esteem, a very positive. He wasn't just the kid with Tourette. He was the drummer. Um, it helped him um, socially and now uh, as a career. So encourage the strengths and, and the talents anytime you get a chance to. So in, in ending, my, my advice to parents would be um, accept their apologies. Um, I know that it's sometimes hard to, be, um, but if we stop accepting their, um, their apologies, they're going to stop apologizing. Uh, apologizing, and I, I think that's a pretty bad thing. So they really are remorseful, and it's good if we can accept their apologies and then talk about some strategies. I mean, it's okay to let them know that that they hurt your feelings, but I understand that's part of your Tourette or you're part of your ADD, so let's talk about this. Um, get the, your child to understand that the strategies and techniques um, are helpful and then help them come up with them. Um, recognize that um, you know if they're not involved in developing the strategies and the techniques, then most times they're not going to use them. Um, so get them involved when they're um, developing strategies. And for us, support groups were really, really uh, very helpful. Um, but it had to be support groups with um, 
participants who've had similar difficulties, and also groups of people that are positive. So it doesn't have to necessarily be a support group. It can be friends. Um, but um, stay with the people that, that um, have a positive outlook and, and aren't uh, angry. Obviously, this one is most important. Love your child, um, even when it gets really difficult. Um, you're not going to like a lot of the things that your your child does, but always let them know that you love them. So important. Um, and and lastly, take care of you. It's not easy parenting a child with Tourette or ADD. Take the time to do things that are positive for you, because if you fall apart, uh, you're not going to be much good for your child. Um, now that my kids are adults, I can I can honestly share with you that that they are my pride and joy. And um, all the the difficulties um, do diminish as they get older. Um, and um, I I took care of myself so that. Once a patient has been diagnosed with Tourette syndrome and um, has tics, even if their vocal or motor tics um, go away or they outgrow, are, do they still carry the diagnosis of Tourette syndrome? Um, thank you for the question. Are, can everybody hear me still? Um, with many people with Tourette syndrome, the tics do get better and improve over time, and the ADHD, for example, persists. Um, if there are no longer any um, tics present, uh, since to meet criteria, you have to have both motor and vocal tics. Uh, you'd meet lifetime criteria for Tourette's, but not uh, current criteria. So that's how we'd view it. Um, that would be important to know, because many times as young people get older, they can have other issues. And it's important to know if young folks had tics in the past in terms of treatment planning. I don't know if that answers the question. Time criteria, but not current criteria. OK, great. Thank you. I think that does answer the question. Um, and we're just going to rotate questions here for each speaker. So um, Pam, how can you tell if misbehavior is caused by Tourette syndrome, or is just common misconduct for um, a young child that needs to be corrected? Well, that's always the tricky question that people present to me. And really and truly, I kind of address them one and the same. Because the bottom line is, if a child's got a behavior that they're doing, um, and I prefer to use the word symptom, because behavior implies intent and negative intent. And I, I want to teach them a better way, whether they're meaning to do this on purpose, if it's a three-year-old who's biting me, or if it's a tick and it, or it's a sensory thing or whatever, we have to get to the root of why is this happening and figure out how to teach them to do it a better way. Do they need sensory input and do they need something more appropriate to bite on than my arm? Do they need, um, they, they, and sometimes the more we call attention to negative behavior and we punish it, the more we're actually reinforcing it, because we're kind of planting seeds and digging them deep down. 
And Tourette's is a disorder of disinhibition and suggestibility. And that suggestibility piece is really important to keep in mind. Because the more we suggest something, if the more we say stop, don't, don't do it, the more we're actually planting that seed for the impulsive child to do it, even in children with ADHD. So it's better to focus on, oh, wow, you know, what can we do different? I bet you can't use a whispered voice instead of yelling, or instead of biting my arm, let's try this. Or, um, you know, finding a, an appropriate replacement behavior that is, that is more um, uh, socially appropriate and teaches them a positive behavior to replace it with. Too often, if we just punish, 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 even if, even if it's a little one and they are doing it on purpose and we don't teach them a different way to do it and we're just punishing them, then they're not really learning anything from the experience. Um, and our next question is for Kathy. And Kathy, as a parent, if your child is not aware of their Tourette syndrome symptoms yet, um, how as a parent might you address that? Um, tell, and part of this question was, um, how could you tell your child that they have Tourette syndrome? And should you go ahead and address it or just um, ignore it? Well, I think it depends on the age of the child. Um, there are some kids that will have ticks, you know, three and four, even five years old, that uh, aren't necessarily uh, going to develop into Tourette syndrome. But if, if we think that the kids aren't really uh, recognizing it when they get up into first grade, second grade, and up, um, I think we're fooling ourselves because uh, either the child themselves is going to notice that they're doing things that other people aren't doing. Um, or it's going to be pointed out to them um, by uh, classmates or um, um, friends and neighbors. So I've always been a proponent of talking to children um, about the fact that they have these tics, uh, may have Tourette syndrome, um, but it's not a big deal. I mean, I, I think the, the, the more we make a big deal about it, um, the worse it is. So if we can talk about the child and and just explain that, you know, one in a hundred kids have either tics or Tourette syndrome. So, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to deal with this and it's not all of who you are. You know, look, you're a great, you play the guitar great. Um, so, and, and I've always thought that secrets are typically bad. And so if a child knows that something's going on, but the parent's not talking to him or her about it, um, it's a secret. And, if you're not talking to your neighbors about it, if you're not talking to the rest of the family about it, I think it gives the message to the child that um, this is something that's bad. So, um, you know, I'm obviously a very young child. You would not necessarily want to approach that. But once the child starts noticing, and they're going to start noticing um, that they're doing things that other people don't do, I think it's an excellent job. and. and or an excellent idea to, to talk to them about it. And we have videos, we have books. Um, there are lots of ways to um, explain to your child that uh, this is something you have, um, but it's just not a big deal. Great, thank you, Kathy. Um, and Dr. Coffey, back to you. We have a couple questions here about medication. <laughs> 
Um, and parents who are wondering when, how do you decide to try medication? And then the second part to that, if you have tried medication and you have a, and you've tried specifically a stimulant and it has worsened or heightened the ticks, what other um, alternative either therapies or medications are out there? Sure. Well, thank you for the question. It's an excellent question that is really important for many, many people. Um, in general, most kids, even who come into a specialty clinic, will have mild to moderate tick symptoms. And oftentimes, as I mentioned earlier, ADHD is the more problematic issue. For treatment of ticks, our first intervention is always behavioral because there is a scientifically sound evidence-based treatment called CBIT, Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Ticks, which is um, a wonderful treatment. It works for children, adolescents, and adults. And it is, uh, there are no side effects associated with it. So unless the child is severely afflicted with ticks and can't go to school or needs to be in the hospital, we generally start with with CBIT, um, four months altogether. And if for some reason they're not improving, that would be the time that we'd be thinking about. We recommend an off-label medication first. Off-label meaning it's not um, indicated for Tourette's syndrome. But it's one of the alpha agonists, which people may be familiar with, uh, medicines like Tenex and uh, Clonidine or Catapress. Um, long story short, we use them first because they are must, much less likely to cause side effects. So that's kind of the strategy. In terms of how you decide, we have quantitative um, rating scales of symptoms that you can add up the severity of ADHD symptoms and tick symptoms, and oftentimes looking at those instruments and then talking with the family, getting information from the school, and speaking with the child, we can decide on which, um, inner, which uh, symptoms we should start with for treatment. Last part of the question in terms of what do you do if a kid truly has had um, more ticks or uh, different ticks or new ticks on a stimulant, thankfully we have some good alternatives. Many times if the stimulant has been helpful for ADHD, we will add a 10X or a clonidine to the stimulant. And because we use the 10X or clonidine to treat ticks, the two in combination will work, work well. But there's also a medication out there called Stratera or Atomoxetine, which has been studied um, in Tourette syndrome uh, in kids with ADHD. And it's also a very good alternative. There are also other medications that you can use, but those are the kind of go-to uh, medications that we typically start with. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. And for Pam, um, with regards to the schools and children with ADHD and Tourette's syndrome, um, what's the difference between positive support and a reward system? That's a great question. Um, basically, a reward system or a punishment system is where, like a punishment system, you get a mark on the board every time you do something wrong, and after five marks, you're going to get a call or a note home to your mom or go to the principal. A um, reward system, every time you show good behavior, you're going to get a mark on your card or on the board, and once you have so many marks, you get 
a break or get to play on the computer or you get to pick a prize from the prize box or something like that. So as you can see in those examples, you might get immediate reinforcement because they're thinking, hey, I want that prize or hey, I don't want my mom to know I did this. So you'll see it in the immediate, um, you know, immediately you might see an improvement in whatever the symptom is you're trying to get under control. But in the long term, the child really doesn't learn how to cope with that symptom and doesn't learn a positive outlet for it. They just kind of, especially with the punishment systems, they just learn, wow, I'm really a bad kid because look at all these marks on my card. And then that can increase anxiety, which can increase symptoms, and it can be a spiraling effect. So the kid can get actually in more and more trouble because so much attention is being called to the negative. So instead, for example, if a kid's calling out and they're really impulsive, instead of giving them a mark for being bad every time they call out or giving them a reward for quiet behavior, teach them a strategy for that. So for some kids, it's like they you have to talk to them, find out, you know, why are you calling out? Sometimes it's just impulsivity. Sometimes it's a need for them, for you to know that they know the answer. That can be more of an obsessive, compul and compulsive kind of behavior. So you have to find out what's going on there, because if they need for you to know that they know the answer, then the strategy might be, why don't you write down your answers for me and give them to me at the end and then I'll look at them, and I'll, that way other people have a chance, because I know you're so smart. And, and that way it keeps them focused. It gives them something to do and something positive, and then they're not in trouble for calling out. Or if it's an impulsivity issue, then you might teach them, you know, instead of um, calling out the answer, why don't you try um, counting, you know, uh, taking deep breaths and counting to five in your head, and then raise your hand. And if um, nobody else has answered or raised their hand, then I'll call on you because I know you're so smart. A lot of times if we reinforce, we know you know the answer, we know how bright you are, then it kind of calms down that anxiety, that nervous tendency to want to always be out there and, and, um, and, and be offering the answer. So it just really depends upon the behavior. But for the most part, the gist of it is, is you want to teach them something positive that they can do in the long run not just something short-term. I hope that's clear, and if not, type in and I'll answer some more. Um, for Kathy now, as a parent, if you have, if your child is, um, because of all their issues associated with Tourette syndrome and ADHD, has given up on learning, um, what are some strategies you can do to provide encouragement and other other support uh, mechanisms for your child? Yeah, that's a good question, too. And um, actually, it's it's not, I wouldn't say it's typical of kids with Tourette, but it's, I have worked with some kids over the years that have kind of given up. And what we need to do is, again, look to why. Um, I am a very big believer in looking for clues and being a detective because um, I believe to my toes that every kid wants to learn and wants to be successful. So we need to figure out why. Is it because of handwriting have they given up? Is it because they have uh, processing delays? Um, is it because they have uh, such sensory issues that are going on? Is it because they have executive functioning? Um, and they're just so disorganized. Um, a, a lot of the kids that do give up are very, very bright. And that's, that's really a, a difficult situation. 
but we want to really examine and, and obviously the first thing you would do is to ask the school for um, a complete evaluation and uh, we have materials on our website so you could you could look at that and see oh yeah I think this might be something that impacts my child um, no I don't think this does but oh yeah this here you know it may be um, and we have, we also have on our website a, a great article that uh, includes many, many, many strategies for a lot of the different um, difficulties that kids might have. So um, I, I really think trying to figure out the, the root cause and um, helping, helping the child and finding something that they can be. Even if, as the kids get older, it gets the, the well of despair and, and giving up sometimes gets deeper and deeper and so deep that they can't see the light of success. So if we can give them a little bit of success, then maybe we can get them to see that, um, yes, with these strategies, it can be helpful. But um, as, as Pam suggested, the bottom line really is to figure out why, um, what's going on. Um, and there's so many issues with kids with Tourette's and ADD that it could be. One of the most common um, I have seen over the years is uh, difficulty getting thoughts from the brain to the paper. Um, it, it's not only just the handwriting, but it's the organization of the thoughts. Um, so do they need to use a scribe? Do they need to use a, a laptop, um, a keyboarding? Um, you know, just so many, so many different reasons that it might be. So just be curious and get the school involved in being curious. Great, thank you. Um, we're going to get uh, one or two more questions in here, and actually, Kathy, I'm going to come back to you, and then Pam, um, if you could respond to this same question after Kathy does. Um, so one of the questions we have is, um, do you have any strategies for how you can help um, children with Tourette syndrome and ADHD make friends at school? Um, and so, Kathy, if you could speak to that as a parent, maybe some strategies that you you've used? Yeah. Um, Pam is actually um, more of an expert on this one, uh, the socializing, but um, um, she has some good strategies as a speech pathologist. But as, as a parent, um, what, what I found was helpful was, again, to, to find the, what my son did well. Uh, the drumming got him to have more friends. Uh, my daughter was more of an artist. Um, so really relying on their strengths. Um, having kids over but one at a time and having activities that you know are going to be positive, um, really um, working on talking to the teachers to make sure that they um, team up your child with somebody that uh, um, they could be friends with, not, not a bully, <laughs> obviously. Um, so I'm going to turn this over to Pam more because she really is more the expert on this area. Well, um, the short answer to this is I did a presentation on this at the Tourette's conference um, last year, and I believe that that is posted on the website, the slides from that. And there are a lot of ideas on there for how you actually organize a play date and keep it structured so that you can set it up for success. Because I think part of it is that kids don't have the skills socially, and then they get overwhelmed, especially at school with all the 
noise and the hustle and bustle of their sensory issues. And it's just a lot to take in for them. And then it's hard to try to make friends on top of that because they've got these behaviors that seem to be unusual to compared to the other children and the other children kind of isolate them. And so I think one of the first things, going back to the question about um, do you tell your kid that they have Tourette, if they're at school age, and I think it is important, and it's not just so that they have an understanding of what's going on with their body, but also so that they can start to self-advocate and explain to kids, hey, when I make that noise, my brain's just wired a little bit differently, and so it just comes out kind of like when you sneeze. You can't really help it. You don't know it's coming. You just sneeze. Well, that's how these things are for me. And if you give them the words to try to explain that to kids, kids are pretty empathetic. And I think that that's the first step is awareness so that it's not scary. And they, and then they can fit in more. And kids are more inclined to want to be their friends then. Um, so that's the first step. I think lunch bunch, if, you know, whether it's a speech pathologist, an occupational therapist, or the school counselor, somebody's got to work on um, on social skills with these kids, especially if they're really struggling, to teach them the skills that they need. And, um, you know, there's a lot of information in the autism Asperger's realm on this. Um, now we also, we don't really have Asperger's as a diagnosis anymore, but we have social communication disorder, which seems to fit a lot of kids with um, Tourette syndrome, and that's a whole other talk. But um, I guess my, my point bring that up is, some of the Asperger stuff is very, it's, it's more social stories where it's like a script and you learn how to use the script and it's not real effective for a lot of kids with Tourette. It's good at teaching them, but they're not just going to be able to use the script like a kid with autism. They do really well with that rote memorization and, and knowing exactly what to say at what time. And our kids, there's a lot of anxiety that underlies this. And so it's not as easy for them to just go to that fallback script. So I guess I caution you to be careful about what approach you use in social skills. It's a really complicated issue, and it needs a good evaluation and good assessment to figure out what's the cause of it, what's going on, and what skills does your child need. So I would ask for a speech pathology evaluation for pragmatic language disorder or social skills, um, social communication disorder, and um, start there so that you can get help that way. Great, thank you. Thank you. Our last question um, is for Dr. Coffey. Who is the best person to diagnose Tourette syndrome? A neurologist, a psychiatrist, either, or someone else? Uh, thank you for your question. I'm very sorry. I just lost internet connection and just got back on. Um, it is either typically a neurologist or a psychiatrist that make a diagnosis, but um, often this starts with the primary care physician, the pediatrician. Um, but many times the pediatrician will refer to either a psychiatrist or a neurologist, and both are equally capable of making the diagnosis. There are obviously some uh, physicians and clinicians who are more experienced with Tourette than others, but um, typically uh, either one can diagnose. We have a certain standard that we used um, that is published, and most uh, practicing physicians and, and psychologists and so forth will, will be aware of the diagnostic criteria. 
Well, thank you to our panel of experts, our participants, and the Turret Association. Thank you again to Dr. Coffey, Pam, Kathy, and Allie with the Turret Association for joining us and to all of you for participating today. This concludes our webcast. Want school mornings to be stress-free? Planning the night before can make mornings run more smoothly for you and your child. Place a basket or box by the front door for backpacks, lunch boxes, coats, jackets, and whatever else your child might need to grab on their way out. For more tips to get the school year started right, go to the CHAD website, www.help4adhd.org. That's www.help and the number 4 adhd.org.